It's always a special time when we have communion service. And so I'm trusting that God will bless us with not just the uh, foot washing and the emblems, but with considering his word in light of the communion service. We start with 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, you know how older people tend to see everyone as young. And John by this time was quite elderly. So he was writing to all the church members, my little children. These things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. Or we could use a smaller word, substitute. And he is the substitute for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Some very interesting thoughts in these verses. It shows us the possibility, and that is that we don't sin. But it offers a solution if we do sin. And I'm sure no one would say you went all week without sinning. When we sin, we have someone that pleads in our behalf. And we saw the, the testimony of what Moses did for the Israelites in our Sabbath school lesson, which shows us what Jesus is doing continually with the same decision as he hung upon Calvary. There was a period of time in which it appeared to him that if he went ahead with this, he would never see his father again. So he made the decision, if I never see my father again, I'm going to die for these people. That is an incredible decision and certainly qualifies him to be our advocate. And of course, since he never sinned at all, he is righteous and he was able, because he didn't sin, to substitute his life for ours. And then the point that is also very amazing, in fact, all these points are, that he would actually pay the price for every person on earth. Now, I don't know what the ratio will be. It's probably less than 1% that will be saved. And yet, he paid the price for every single person on earth that would live or ever would live. He paid the price for their sins. And a very encouraging thought is, since he paid the price, would he withhold forgiveness? Absolutely not. He's already paid the price, and he's eager to forgive when it's needed. Also in 1 John 4, verse 10, it says, Herein is love, 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Suppose he had waited to give us his love until we would show love toward him. It wouldn't happen because we cannot be the, the initiator of love. So he then manifested love. And how did he do it? And sent his son to be the propitiation or substitute for our sins. You see, you can't go to heaven without a perfect record of never having sinned once in your entire life. And there's only one way we can get that as human beings, and that is from Jesus. What a blessing it is that he is able to provide that for us as well as to be able to forgive us for the sins that we've done. Paul uh, speaks in Romans 3, verses 24 and 5, and he uses a very important word, freely. Being justified freely by his grace. So when we come to Jesus, when we see our need and we come to him, we don't have to try to twist his arm. We don't have to promise to be good the rest of our life, you know, to get the favor. It is something that he freely gives. He wants to give even before we ask. And when we ask, he freely gives it. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And then he puts it this way, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. So as we bring our sins to him and we confess them to him, he declares that we are righteous because he was righteous. How can he do that? Through the forbearance of God. Or we could put mercy in there as well. That's the only way he could do it. Otherwise, he would have to wipe us out for our sins instead of being willing to give us a, as though we had a perfect record of never sinning. Now, unfortunately, there have developed two views of this. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the ratio would be in the church <coughs> in regard to this, but there's quite a, uh, you know, feeling on both sides. And so I'll kind of describe them. If, if anybody knows more accurately than I do, if you can help me change the statement, I'd be glad to do that because I don't want to misrepresent. You've heard of the straw man. You know, I don't want to do that. <clears throat> it's easy when you misstate your people that differ from you. It's very easy to show that they're wrong because you misstated it. Um, so we don't want to do that. That's not Christ-like to do that. The first view I'll mention is some believe that the cross gave salvation to all and we have it by believing it was given at the cross. So, 
it's really just a matter of believing that you received it and then you have it. The other view, others believe the cross freely provides salvation to all who will take advantage of this provision. Now the first people that hold the first view, they don't like the word provision because it's in their mind not a done deal. It's something that you have to do something to get. And so, you know, as I've been reading, I've been trying to uh, look at things that will clearly state what it is because I'm fearful of trying to state it myself. And this past week I came across a statement that I think is the clearest that I have ever read. And yet I favor the second view because of the amount of reading I've done, uh, both in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, it seems like that it, it wasn't a done deal and there is something that we have to do to receive it. Now, of course, we don't do anything on our own power because we're too weak. Everything we do is because we've allowed his power to, to do something in us. And so I want to read that to you comes from the uh, Fifth Testimonies, page 603. And along with the statement, it gives some very wonderful things uh, along with it. It says, Christ came to bring salvation within the reach of all. That's pretty clear which view is correct, isn't it? He didn't give salvation to everybody, but he brought salvation within the reach of how many all. all so there's nobody that's so far removed from what he did that they couldn't reach out and take it they could benefit because it's that close he has put it close enough that they can reach it christ came to bring salvation within the reach of all. Upon the cross of Calvary, he paid the infinite redemption price for a lost world. Key word there is infinite. We, we cannot imagine what price he had to pay to cover and take away everybody's sin in the whole world. His self-denial and self-sacrifice, his unselfish labor, his humiliation, above all, the offering up of his life, testifies to the depth of his love for fallen man. And those are subjects we need to think about and talk about, and especially at communion time, we need to think about these things. How much self-denial did he have to have to leave heaven for 33 and a half years? and to take upon himself human nature. And although at his resurrection he had a sinless body, to keep human nature throughout the rest of his eternity, what kind of self-denial and self-sacrifice did that take? And what kind of self-denial and sacrifice to be in a world for 33 and a half years 
where most people would spit in your face, consider you an uh, illegitimate child and worthy of death and thinking of ways to kill you and to blacken your reputation to your face or behind your back, how much was it? We cannot imagine how much it was. And then think of the hours that he put in serving the needs of mankind. I don't think he got much sleep many nights because he worked all day for the people that were available and then he worked into the night for the ones that had a job and then he got up early in the morning to plead with God for strength to do what he had to do that day. And so his unselfish labor testifies of his love, his humiliation, and the clearest is of course what happened that last week of his life on earth, especially as he went through the scenes that led to Calvary. And then finally, being willing to surrender his very life itself. All of these things are powerful to convince us that he loves us. There is no other human being that did anything similar to what he did. No religious leader, no other person, no one. He is the only one that testified of his love in this way. It was to seek and to save the lost that he came to earth. His mission was to sinners, sinners of every grade, of every tongue and nation. You know, we have a bad habit as human beings to look down upon other nations, not all maybe, but some. And thank God Jesus doesn't do that. He loves all nations. He loves every tongue. He is eager to help sinners of every grade, it says. He paid the price for all to ransom them and bring them into union and sympathy with himself. And if he's able to accomplish that in them because they allow him to do it, then they are perfectly united with each other as well. And that's a big need that we have. So this theme is continued a little bit, and I think it's a very encouraging matter. The most erring, the most sinful were not passed by. You know, do we see people that are so obviously sinning and doing things that perhaps we know they know they shouldn't do, and we really start looking down upon them and so on? Jesus didn't do that. He doesn't do that. And he wants to inspire us to not do it either. The most erring, the most sinful, were not passed by. His labors were especially for those who most needed the salvation he came to bring. Imagine that. His deepest interest was for the worst of sinners. Now, there's probably none of those here today, but he wants us to participate 
in the work that he did while he was here. That the worst of sinners receive evidence of God's love. The greater their need of reform, the deeper was his interest, the greater his sympathy, and the more earnest his labors. Amazing. We would say, Jesus, why don't you find some people that are a little bit easier to help? Why are you spending your energy on these people that just seem so deep in sin and are so hopelessly wrapped up in their sins? This reveals a very important truth about how Jesus views us. You know, I think a lot of Adventists struggle with the idea that they're not acceptable to God. Even, even though, you know, God has changed their life, but the fact that they keep finding themselves sinning and so on, they, they get to the point where they start thinking, well, you know, certainly I've done it too many times. I, there, there's no hope for me because I might as well give up. Well, we can guarantee that thought comes from Satan because this tells us that Jesus goes by our need. He doesn't go by how bad we've been. He goes by our need. And the greater the need, the more he is willing to help. And the two main things he does is forgive and cleanse. And so the greater the need, the more eligible we are to receive the benefits that he has to offer. If we clearly understand that, we would never give up, no matter how many things are still wrong with us and still need to be corrected. His great heart of love was stirred to its depths for the ones whose condition was most hopeless and who most needed his transforming grace. So I thought, wow, that is stated so wonderfully. I just had to share that today. And it fit perfectly with the communion service. It's so wonderful, I, I want to read it again. The most daring, the most sinful were not passed by. His labors were especially for those who most needed the salvation he came to bring. The greater their need of reform, the deeper was his interest, the greater his sympathy, and the more earnest his labors. His great heart of love was stirred to its depths for the ones whose condition was most hopeless and who most needed his transforming grace. Now this is in a chapter talking about what we need to do as Christians. And so it's our privilege to help the people that are in danger of giving up and thinking they're hopeless and there's no chance. They've been too wicked. They've been too hopeless. And they might as well just figure that I'm going to hell and I'll just accept my fate. And we have the message that can give them hope. That reminds us of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest 
that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. In other words, you call yourself a Christian, you may be tempted to say, oh, I'm no good of a Christian. He says, don't worry, hold on to your profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. It's very important to add that without sin. He was tempted in every way, but he never yielded. However, because he was tempted in every way, he understands the temptations that we face. He understands the pull. He understands the difficulty in saying no to that sin. And so he wants us to recognize he's up there uh, doing his work for us. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, those are the two things. Forgiveness, we need mercy to have forgiveness. And really, we need mercy to have power, too. But usually, we connect that mostly with forgiveness. And then grace is power to say no the next time, to be an overcomer, to uh, take hold of his power and say no to the enemy. He says, you, I want you to come boldly. Don't think about how bad you've been. Just come boldly and request forgiveness and power, and I am promising you I will give it. That's why I came to die, so that you could have it. Going back to Fifth Testimonies, it continues a few paragraphs later, touching on this subject again. The parable of the prodigal son and that of the lost piece of silver teach the same lesson. Now, it talked about the parable of the lost sheep. So really, all three parables teach the same lesson. Every soul that is especially imperiled by falling into temptation causes pain to the heart of Christ and calls forth his tenderest sympathy and most earnest labor. So two things happen when we sin. Number one, it causes pain to Jesus, the very one that has done all these things for us. Causes him pain, extreme pain. We can't understand how much pain it causes him when we sin. And yet, even though that's true, Jesus responds with deep sorrow for what we have done to ourselves and the damage that we have done. He doesn't focus on his pain. And you know, by the way, that's uh, uh, some people have learned that when you don't focus on your pain, your pain gets less. And so Jesus does not focus on his pain, but instead he focuses on our pain. And it motivates him, says it calls forth his tenderest sympathy and most earnest labor. So he goes to work to try to help us because of the pain that we have done to ourselves. Over one sinner that repenteth, 
His joy is greater than over the ninety and nine who need no repentance. So he's happier about those that get rescued from sin than he is those that are already trusting in him and so on. And you know what? We're not even jealous because we're just also entering into his happiness that someone who had been yielding to the enemy is now a child of God. This is interesting too from uh, Councils on Diets and Foods, page 458. Let the workers keep Christ, the great physician, constantly before those to whom disease of body and soul has brought discouragement. So now we go to our privilege. We have the opportunity to tell people the good news. And it says that we're supposed to keep this in front of them all the time. Both if they have disease of the body and disease of the soul. We are to remind them and to share with them how much Jesus has loved them. Point them to the one who can heal both physical and spiritual disease. He never lost a case. He never said to somebody to be well and they stayed sick. He never did. Every time he told them, they got well. Now, some people he didn't heal, we're told, but he didn't try to heal them either because there were reasons why he couldn't heal them. Point them to the one who can heal both physical and spiritual disease. Tell them of the one who is touched with the feeling of their infirmities. I don't know that there's anything that makes people sadder than to believe that nobody cares. They're going through trials and troubles and difficulties and nobody cares. We have the privilege of saying there's somebody who cares every day that you suffer. There's never a moment that he's unaware of the suffering that you're going through. Tell them of the one who is touched with the feeling of their infirmities. Encourage them to place themselves in the care of him who gave his life to make it possible for them to have eternal life. Talk of his love. Tell of his power to save. That's what Jesus needs us to do because he can't do it personally now he can't demonstrate now. We have to draw people's attention to the stories and to the truth that he loves them. Romans 8.32 says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So maybe there's some things you desire today and you're maybe even asking him for it. Here we have a beautiful promise. Jesus has made the infinite sacrifice, which means that anything else that's for our good, he's going to give us. If he doesn't give it to us, we can know that there's a reason why we shouldn't have it. Because anything that's for our good, 
he's going to give us. And notice the word is used, freely. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now one thing is a blessing too that whatever we don't get in this life because it wasn't best for us to have it, we will get in life eternal. And so it's just delayed, that's all. Everything, you know, those who have struggle with sickness, those who have struggle with uh, children that don't accept the Lord, those that have struggles, whatever it is, uh, those struggles, he understands and he will give the answer that he can do. Now, he doesn't force people. So when it comes to somebody's decision to follow him, you know, he can do everything possible to attract them, but he cannot force them to do it. Then they would just be a robot. And we'll close with this uh, thought from Desire of Ages 166. Though the ministration was to be removed from the earthly to the heavenly temple, so we have, you know, all through the Old Testament, the Old Testament sanctuary. Well, when Jesus came and died on earth, he changed that to the heavenly. Though the ministration was to be removed from the earthly to the heavenly temple, though the sanctuary and our great high priest would be invisible to human sight, yet the disciples were to suffer no loss thereby. Have you ever wished you could have lived when Jesus was on earth and heard him talk to you personally and share with you what he could do for you or whatever? Well, guess what? It's true, we can't see him physically, but he is just as much here as if he was here physically. It says, yet the disciples were to suffer no loss thereby. They would realize no break in their communion and no diminution of power, diminution of power because of the Savior's abstinence. So there's just as much power now as there was when he was on earth. While Jesus ministers in the sanctuary above, he is still by his spirit the minister of the church on earth. He is withdrawn from the eye of sense, but his parting promise is fulfilled. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and don't get tripped up by the fact that it says His Spirit, it's not just an influence that emanates from Jesus, that's the Spirit, but it is a third member of the Godhead. And so they have such a close union together that often it uses the term His Spirit, or the Spirit of the Father. It uses those terms. But through the Spirit, it's like Jesus never left this earth. All the blessings that Jesus gave to people while he was here are still available if we only believe that they are available. And he is ministering in the heavenly sanctuary so that all those blessings will flow 
to earth. 